This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center, and our topic today is Encountering Messianic Judaism. I have a special guest in the studio today, David Brickner. David is with Jews for Jesus, and tell us your title there. I'm the executive director. Okay, and you're based out of San Francisco, right? That's right. I used At, to live in Alameda, so uh-huh. we have a nice Bay Area connection there. Well, Jews for Jesus really grew out of the countercultural movement mm-hmm. and the uh, Jesus Revolution, which was really centered in the Bay Area back mm. in the late 80s, okay. late uh, 70s, 1970s, mm. and really uh, that's where we have our international headquarters now because that's where we began, even though people like to say that Jews for Jesus began in Jerusalem, 32 <laughs> AD, give or take a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show. It's so good to have Thank you. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about, uh, well, you have a DTS connection too, don't you? Well, Mark Bailey, the president, has been on the board of directors of Jews for Jesus, and he's the chairman of our Theological Concerns Committee. And so his contribution and many others here at DTS have been uh, really important to us. Susan Perlman, who is my first assistant, sits on the board of directors, the board of regents of Dallas Theological Seminary. And this school, perhaps more than any other seminary in America, has kept at its heart, the belief that God has a plan for the Jewish people mm-hmm. and that has yet to be fulfilled, including promises concerning the land of Israel today. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey into, you weren't always part of the Messianic Jewish movement, right? That's true. How did that happen? Well, my story is a little bit different than most of my colleagues in Jews for Jesus in that I come on my mother's side from five generations of Messianic Jews. Hmm. My great-great-grandfather was the chief rabbi of the Hasidic Jews of Zhitomer back in the Ukraine, Hmm. and in the 1850s, his wife became a follower of Jesus. So you think Jews for Jesus raises eyebrows today. Hmm. You can just imagine what it was like for the wife of the chief rabbi to become a follower of Jesus. And so all the way back on that side of my family, there have been Messianic Jews. My father was raised in an Orthodox Orthodox Jewish home in Mobile, Alabama, of all places. They say shalom y'all down there. (laughs) And uh, he came to faith in Christ through the witness of my mother's father Hmm. in a ministry. And uh, so I had the privilege of being raised in a Messianic Jewish home. But we have a saying in Jews for Jesus that being born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a bakery makes you a bagel. (laughs) And so even though I had this beautiful heritage of being raised as a Jewish person mm-hmm. and told that Jesus is our Jewish Messiah, that felt really strange to me, like I was sticking out. I was not like the other Jews mm-hmm. in my class growing up. So I put the Jesus stuff away and just lived a very kind of 
secular existence until mm-hmm. I was in college. And in my freshman year at Boston University, Jews for Jesus actually had a ministry there. I met some of them in front of the student union of Boston University. They invited me to a Bible study, and there I encountered a whole group of other Jewish college students who had come to faith in Christ. I knew I had come home. Mm-hmm. And later that evening, I invited Jesus to be my Messiah, my Lord and mm-hmm. Savior. And it changed my life radically. It changed the direction of my life. And from that point on, I've been involved in sharing the good news of Messiah with my Jewish people all around the world. That's awesome. How do you explain to people who have never heard of Messianic Judaism how you can be both a Jew and Christian? Well, if you go back to the book of Acts, the Mm -hmm. real question was whether or not you could be a Gentile and believe in Uh Jesus. And they had to actually have a whole church council in Acts chapter 15 to decide Mm -hmm. if Gentiles had to convert to Judaism in order to become followers of Jesus. They decided properly, thank the Lord, that God wants all people to come as they are. So Jewish people, we like to say we're twice-born children of Abraham. Mm. So we're children of Abraham by, by birth by uh, genetics, you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're descended literally from those forefathers. But we've become twice-born children of Abraham because we've come become true children of Abraham through faith in his greater son, Jesus the Messiah, and we've been imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit and made one with all others who follow him from every tribe and tongue and nation. Mm-hmm. Well, even though the earliest followers of Jesus were in fact Jewish, uh, how do we pinpoint when Messianic Judaism as we know it today came into its own and became an identifiable uh, movement? That's a great question. You know, up until the fourth century, there was a vibrant Messianic Jewish presence within the church, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, uh, pretty much under the reign of Constantine, uh, the Jewish aspect of the Christian church was sorely diminished, persecuted, and through the Middle Ages all the way into the present uh, was almost invisible. But in the 19th century, with the rise of the modern missions movement, Mm -hmm. Jewish believers in Jesus began to take on a more prominent uh, place in the eyes of the church. They called themselves back in in those days, the Hebrew Christian movement. And they were known as Hebrew Christians, Jews who'd come to believe in Jesus. They started to develop some of their own cultural expressions. They had societies where they would get together for conferences. But in the late 60s and early 70s of the 20th century, something happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out in amazing ways among young Jews, and many of them wanted to embrace their Jewish identity and express their faith in Christ through that and let the rest of the Jewish community know that you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. This was not well known at all Mm -hmm. and pretty much rejected by the Jewish community leaders. Mm -hmm. So the modern-day Messianic Jewish movement in its forms that you find it today really are the result of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in North America, the late 60s, early 70s. 70s and then spreading around the world as it has today. Was that in San Francisco where Jews for Jesus is now or where was that? Well, San Francisco was unique to our ministry because okay. we are 
really a direct evangelistic ministry. We're not so much a, of a congregational movement, but mm-hmm. we're an evangelistic organization that relentlessly pursues God's plan for the salvation of the Jewish people. But we do plant congregations, and so that wasn't located to one particular city. It happened in New York, it happened in Chicago, mm-hmm. it happened in Detroit, wherever. There were concentrations of Jewish people coming to believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Many of them sought to form congregations that would enable them to express their cultural Jewishness mm-hmm. and their faith in Christ. And so various forms of religious expression, many of them might parallel different like forms of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So you might have a Baptist-feeling Messianic congregation mm-hmm. or an Assemblies of God-feeling Messianic congregation or a more traditionally Jewish Messianic congregation that uses the forms and structure of the synagogue to express faith in Jesus. And so there's a whole potpourri of Messianic mm-hmm. congregational life out there, and you just have to take it case by case. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say, what would it be like for somebody who say they got Got invited to a messianic synagogue and they wanted to know kind of ahead of time what to expect is there a what to expect when you get to a messianic synagogue or are they all different they are all different and there are certain things that I think would probably be uh, true. You probably would have a, a more Jewish-sounding expression of music and worship. Mm-hmm. There might be liturgical aspects uh, centered around the uh, the reading of the scroll of the Torah. And uh, faith in Yeshua would be the way their faith is described. That's Jesus' Hebrew name. And Mm -hmm. so you'll hear Hebrew words smattered through. The leadership might have Jewish believers in Jesus, but you can also expect there will be a good number of non-Jews, Gentile Christians who are drawn to that expression. Mm -hmm. They love the Jewish Mm -hmm. roots of the Christian faith, and so they're drawn to the Messianic congregations as well. And some Messianic congregations might find actually a majority of Mm non-Jews worshiping in a more kind of Jewish or quasi-Jewish way. So Mm -hmm. it's a very interesting cultural phenomenon that has occurred over the last uh, 20 years Mm -hmm. or so. Okay, so a very new movement in the grand scheme of things uh, as far as how we know it today. Is it fair to say it's a Protestant movement? How does that slot into the church in general? Well, that's a great question, and I think it depends on who you're talking to. I think you're right about that. I think it's more expressive of a Protestant evangelical Mm -hmm. aspect of the Christian faith, but it's very concerning to Messianic Jewish leaders that they see themselves as a form of or a branch of Judaism. Hmm. I'm not so hung up on that, but I understand when you're trying to create a culture that is recognized by the normative Jewish community, Mm -hmm. you don't want to be seen as Christian, Uh, you want to be seen as Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so Messianic Judaism is the term that uh, many of these leaders have coined in order to try and appeal to a normative Jewish Mm -hmm. community and say, hey, we're part of you. And it's not that these folks want to be distanced from their brothers and sisters in Christ, but in the same way as you might see an African-American church in the inner city express their faith in a very black cultural way, um, that's how Jewish people want. They want a Jewish expression Mm -hmm. of faith in Jesus that is welcoming to other Jews, Mm -hmm. not so scary, like the boundary is so far to cross. Mm -hmm. So how do, in a more mainstream, uh, Orthodox, Reformed, Conservative Jews 
tend to view Messianic Jews? Well, that's changing, interestingly enough. Back in the 70s, when I first started in Jews for Jesus, one of the constants would be rejection, and sometimes very visceral. And it was a, a heartbreak for many Jewish people come to believe in Jesus to experience rejection. Oftentimes, parents would hold funerals for children who've hmm. come to follow Jesus. It was wow. very radical. That has changed over time. First of all, because it's become more common. Second of all, because of the high intermarriage rate hmm. in the Jewish community, over 55%. And so a lot of these Jewish kids are growing up with both Jewish and quote unquote Christian or nominally Christian parents. And so mm -hmm. the idea of trying to uh, put the two together in some form of identity has been part of a millennial journey. Mm -hmm. So we did a survey, Jews for Jesus did not too long ago with the Barna Group of North American millennial Jews. Mm -hmm. And we found a much greater openness to the idea of a dual identity or Messianic Jewish or Jewish Christian because they grew up that way. They grew up with Hanukkah and Christmas. Mm. They grew up with Passover and Easter, mm. and they haven't necessarily figured it out yet. It's just part of their identity, you know, how they grew up. Mm -hmm. And so we're helping those people to find genuine faith in Jesus and appreciation of their Jewish side as well. Mm -hmm. So there's more openness here in North America and even in other parts of the world, like in Israel, where we're actually seeing greater openness to the gospel than ever before. Mm -hmm. Young people, generally speaking, have rejected the strident strictures of Orthodox Judaism. They're not really satisfied with the kind of pablum kind of spirituality of the liberal form of Judaism. And so they're just looking for truth, and they're looking all over the place, and uh, we're finding them very open to hearing how we express our faith as Jews, as Israelis, in Jesus, the greatest Jew that ever lived. That's amazing. Is there is there a, a lot of religious freedom then in Israel for Messianic Jews to practice? There is. Uh, Israel is a democracy and offers freedom of religion and has signed the UN Declaration on Freedom of Religion. However, Israel is a complicated place because it is the Jewish state. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there is a kind of a coalition between secular and religious. And the religious are the fastest growing segment of Israeli society. They have a much higher birth rate. And as a result, uh, the religious try to gain the upper hand in controlling certain aspects of culture, education, mm -hmm. immigration, mm -hmm. things uh, uh, that really most Israeli secularists don't care that much about, mm -hmm. and they're happy to cede to the religious. The problem for Messianic Jews is then, Religious Jews who don't acknowledge them, who fear their efforts to so-called convert Jews, mm. will make life difficult for them. They'll persecute them on the job. They'll make life difficult in terms of American Jews wanting to immigrate to Israel and become mm. citizens. So it is a complicated situation. And so from time to time, you can have well-known Jewish believers in Jesus who've been going over to Israel taking tours, teaching, mm -hmm. all of a sudden they arrived at the border and somebody flags them and they're sent home. Mm 
Hmm. Uh, it's really an odd thing. It doesn't have any rhyme or reason to it. But if the religious can oppose Messianic Jews in the land of Israel, despite the freedom of religion, they will find a way to do it. Hmm. That's interesting. So we talked about how uh, Judy. Jews in general tend to view Messianic Judaism and how that's kind of changed over the years. How On the Christian side, have you seen um, a similar evolution with how uh, Christians tend to view Messianic Jews in America? Over the large swath, if we go back to the fourth century in Constantine, Jews who wanted to maintain Jewish identity were formally re rejected and refused and were in fact instructed that they had no legal right to observe Passover, to circumcise their young, mm -hmm. to do any of the Jewish rituals for whatever reason, whether it be anti-Semitism or fear of syncretism, the church officially back in the fourth century said no messianic anything. Hmm. And with the uh, rise of the modern missions movement, that changed. And what I have personally seen in my lifetime is a loving embrace hmm. of Jewish believers in Jesus by the wider evangelical Christian movement. We may not always be understood, mm -hmm. and there may be some of the messiness of the movement that can annoy Christians who feel like maybe there's some sort of a neo-Galatianism going mm -hmm. on here or something to that effect. But for the most part, my experience with my brothers and sisters in the evangelical church has been loving embrace, enthusiastic support, and a desire to learn from the Jewish believers about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, which have been lost for many, many years and are only now becoming more important. Like, for example, I know that Passover and other Jewish festivals are really of interest to Christians. Well, mm -hmm. what does this mean since mm -hmm. Jesus celebrated the Passover when he instituted uh, communion? Mm -hmm. How do we understand and how does that enrich our faith? And mm -hmm. so Jewish believers are uniquely positioned in the church to be a bridge for that building of that kind of an understanding. And I think that the more evangelical Christians understand the Jewish roots of their faith, mm -hmm. the more welcoming the Christian can be to their Jewish friends and neighbors, and the more effective they can be in sharing the love of Jesus with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned earlier how people who had grown up, grown up with um, Passover and Easter at the same time, they've already held that tension. They don't necessarily see Passover and Easter as, as anti each other. And as a Christian, as a believer in Messiah, you can see they, they actually, uh, not only are they not anti each other, but you appreciate Easter so much more when you understand um, all the symbolism in the Passover and how it points to Jesus. Um, pretty amazing. You go around telling people and helping people understand um, Jesus and the Passover, don't you? Yes, and many other other festivals also point to Jesus. And after all, the, the Hebrew Scriptures were the Bible of the church. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately today there's much more of an emphasis in Christian preaching in the New Testament. And oftentimes uh, – the understanding of the New Testament is so enriched when you uh, when you realize that it's coming out of the context of the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you can understand those backgrounds, mm -hmm. it just adds. It's like looking at a picture in black and white, and then all of a sudden seeing it in color. You know, it's it's dynamic, it's lively, mm -hmm. and it really strengthens faith because we realize the truth of what the Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm -hmm. And there's this participation element, too, that a lot of Jews have, have talked to me about, like, hey, we're all on Mount Sinai together. We all did this and that together. And so when you're walking through the Passover, 
it, you're not just remembering, you know, a fact or, or some historical um, ideas. You're you're experiencing that going through it, and then we can carry that straight in into into Easter as well. Has has that um, been something that's been uh, helpful to you making that transition into um, Messianic Judaism? Yes, because of course one of the great needs of the church today is community. Mm-hmm. We have become much more of a spectator type church environment. And of course community is vibrant and important to the life of the church and it's always been part of Judaism. You cannot practice Judaism without being a part of a community. And so things like the Passover, which reinforce the dynamic of, you know, this is not a, you know, some kind of a a lone ranger type of an experience. We Mm -hmm. do this together. We Mm -hmm. walk together. And I think that that understanding that flows out of the historic roots of the Jewish-Christian experience uh, can be very helpful for the church today. And a lot of the things we do in church actually were taken off of Jewish worship, weren't they? Public reading of scripture, things like this. We see Jesus read from Isaiah and Luke 4. And wh- where do we get these things? These things are actually sourced in um, Jewish worship, aren't they? Absolutely. And, you know, Paul in Romans 11 views the church, the Gentile churches, as being grafted into mm-hmm. the rich root of the olive tree. And so I think more and more we as followers of Jesus should explore what that means and what the implications are for our faith and our practice. Well, now that we're talking about the scriptures, I want us to, to think about one of my favorite passages in Acts chapter 2 where I believe we have the earliest Jewish apologetic for Jesus as Lord and Messiah, um, touching on Joel 2, Psalm 110, and then of course linking it to to Jesus' vindication and the resurrection and ascension. Um, Talk to us about how that earliest Jewish apologetic worked in the minds of Jews in the first century, and then let's talk about doing Jewish evangelism today. This is a wonderful story. In fact, I've written a whole book about it Mm. called Christ and the Feast of Pentecost, published by Moody Press. It is so wonderful the way God set that up. That sermon had the best platform of any sermon in uh, the New Testament Mm -hmm. and following because it was the day of Pentecost. And people think of Pentecost today and they think of a denomination of Christianity, but in fact, Pentecost was one of the seven festivals Mm -hmm. of the book of Leviticus 23 that Jewish people were required to celebrate. And in Deuteronomy 16, it is one of the three Aliyah festivals, Mm -hmm. that is the ones where men were all required to go up to Jerusalem. So what happens in the book of Acts and the sermon that Peter is preaching comes out of the fact that all the pilgrims from all around the world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And there was an expectation that God could do something because in the very first Pentecost, according to Jewish tradition, that was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone, receiving the law. So there was a a tremendous sense of expectation that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, there was some connection between what was going up on the mountain, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the special effects, you know, Steven Spielberg and George (laughs) Lucas, you know, the wind and the fire and the noise like a you know a freight train and yeah. and people were drawn to it and and so talk about being set up with special effects peter had those things people were there what's going on and then of course he preached from that passage and he preached about david and acts chapter 10 
And according to Jewish tradition, Pentecost was the celebration of both the birthday and the anniversary of David's death. Mm. And so his tomb was right there. <laughs> and so they knew it. They had mm -hmm. come to celebrate the life of their great king, King David, who was the prototype of the Messiah who was to come. And so here he has this tremendous uh, special effects. Mm -hmm. He's got this great object lesson with the tomb of David. He's got these passages like Acts 10, the Lord said to my Lord, who was he talking about? We know David's dead. He's right there. We're here celebrating his life. He was talking about the Messiah, and that's who Jesus was. You know, and what you're seeing, these sights and sounds that kind of bring us back to the day when we all stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, well, Joel predicted that this would happen again, and that's what you're mm -hmm. seeing. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, he almost didn't even have to preach. It was, <laughs> the, everything around him was preaching this amazing message. And of course, we know that 3,000 Jewish people came mm -hmm. to faith in Christ from that one sermon. Mm -hmm. I know Billy Graham is pretty famous, you know, for having people responding to <laughs> Just As I Am. I don't know what song they were singing when 3,000 Jews got saved that day, but it must have been a really good one. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and so you have this, uh, the allusion of also to Psalm 110 is amazing with, uh, you know, what was metaphorically true about the Davidic king, who no human Davidic king ever literally went up and sat uh, at God's right. Jesus literally did. The, this became literal, yeah. and they saw it, and Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit, they said. Yeah. Um, this is evidence that Jesus has been vindicated. Um, Absolutely. So amazing. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Now, when we think about um, Jewish people today, Sometimes Christians have this idea like, well, I've read the Old Testament and I kind of know about what Judaism was back in the, the Bible days, so I, I understand what it's like for, for Jewish people today. But talk to us about the difference between um, uh, Jewish believers or rather Jewish people in, in the Bible in the first century and Jewish people today in terms of are a lot of people kept up at night over who the Messiah is and when he's going to come? Well, that's a great question. The Judaism of today is vastly different from the Judaism of Jesus' day. We call that Second Temple Judaism mm -hmm. because it was still centered around worship in the temple, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic uh, prescriptions, the sacrificial system. That was the Judaism of Jesus' day. And Jesus himself predicted the end of that Judaism when he talked about not one stone will mm. be left upon another. Mm -hmm. What does Judaism do without the temple and without the priesthood? That was the question at the end of the first century that the Jewish community leadership had to deal with, had to wrestle with. They had to reformulate what we now call rabbinic Judaism. Judaism not based upon priesthood, but based upon the authority of the rabbis. And so much of the Hebrew scriptures is based upon sacrifice and 
atonement. So in order to, you know, recreate itself, rabbinic Judaism created a whole body of literature that is now known as the Talmud. And the Talmud is studied in Judaism today more more than the Bible itself. Hmm. And it is the prescription for how Jewish people deal with the theological and the practical questions about how to live as a Jew in light of Mount Sinai and in light of modernity. And this is a constant debate. It's going on all the time. And on the ground, unfortunately, the reality is that most Jews avoid practicing Judaism on a regular basis. Mm. Like many Protestants or Catholics here in America, you go through confirmation and then you leave, you know? For Jewish people, you have a bar mitzvah and you may come back to the synagogue occasionally for weddings, for bar mitzvahs, for the high holiday services, but the life of the synagogue is not the heartbeat of the Jewish community. It's the home. It's the Jewish community center. And secularism uh, from the Enlightenment on has had a deep, deep impact on the Jewish community. and so. For example, if you were to go to Israel today, the vast majority are going to be agnostic, secular. Mm -hmm. I mean, their Jewishness is more connected to their being an Israeli than it is anything that they might say or do mm -hmm. or faith that they might have in God. So let's say, for example, somebody who's listening to us has a Jewish friend. Mm -hmm. You cannot assume that your Jewish friend even believes in God mm -hmm or believes that the Bible is the word of God. And so when you begin to talk to them about matters of faith, you want to find out about those things. Well, what do you really believe about mm -hmm. these things? You know, try to get them to talk about their own faith. And they may feel uncomfortable about it because they won't know very much, mm -hmm. or they may feel it's too personal. But for whatever reason, the vibrancy of Jewish faith in the God of Abraham has been so greatly diminished that you cannot even assume for example, even some who would dress as religious Jews really do believe it. Um, it's become more of a way of life, more of a culture, more of a personal identity than it is a vibrant faith. And this is a tragedy because people are people, and people have that, what Pascal called the, that God you know, shaped vacuum. Yeah. And it, you know, Judaism is a beautiful religion, but it's missing the truth yeah. that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's why my ministry, Jews for Jesus, is passionate about, you know, we are so, we pound the table and weep over the fact, like Paul did, you know, mm -hmm. my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for they have a zeal for God, many of them, mm -hmm. especially the religious, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so Jesus is the missing piece in the Jewish community, and we find that when we embrace him, it's like a Rubik's Cube that all of a sudden comes together. Hmm. It's like all of a sudden, all of it makes sense. We, you know, there's this line from Fiddler on the Roof where Tevia, the main character, is bemoaning his fate. His horse has gone lame, his cow stopped giving his milk, his daughter wants to marry somebody he doesn't approve of. And he, he looks up to God and he says, God, they say we're the chosen people. For once, could you choose someone else? <laughs> <laughs> so this idea of being chosen doesn't seem to be that attractive in light of Jewish history, mm -hmm. which is replete with persecution, often in the name of Christ, mm -hmm. and some of the sufferings of the Jewish people today, anti-Semitism on the rise, Jewish people are saying, you know, 
what's the advantage here, you know? Mm-hmm. I had a Jewish friend, well, let me tell you this story, then I'll ask you this, this question. I had a Jewish friend who, uh, first time he ever heard about Jesus, the name Jesus. He was on a beach and he met this, this kid and uh, he introduced himself and he said, and, and the kid said, hi, I'm so-and-so, we're Jewish. And, um, and the kid said, Jews killed Jesus. Mm. And then he came back to his dad and he's like, dad, who's this Jesus guy and why'd we kill him? And he's like, ah, don't worry about that, just some guy who thought he was God. And he thought that the New Testament was a manual for persecuting Jews. Yeah. Until he opened it up himself, almost like a secret contraband thing that he hoped his Jewish friends and family didn't see him reading. And he's like, these are all Jewish people. And it starts out with the, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, is amazing. Um, and so I think for him and for a lot of Jews, is it fair to say that Judaism is not so much about what people believe sociologically, but more about what people do? Is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair to say. And so because most Jews don't do Judaism, they don't know what they believe about Judaism, and they feel guilty about it all the time. <laughs> mm. And so when we approach people, I mean, we, th- we think about this with, with uh, non-Abrahamic world religious traditions where you meet a Buddhist, you're not going to automatically think, well, I know exactly what you believe because I read this little pamphlet on Buddhism, right? Because there's so many different kinds. And um, ask, so asking those kinds of questions like you would of anybody, really. Um, exactly. Not assuming what somebody believes just because um, they dress a certain way or you know that they're ethnically Jewish. Exactly. And I would just say that the first thing that any Christian should do in approaching a Jewish person is to establish a basis for a, a personal relationship a friendship, and it doesn't take much to become a friend. You show an interest, and it's out of that foundation that you can then begin to explore matters of faith. Mm -hmm. And you'll find very quickly that most Jewish people don't really know what they believe, and they're curious enough to hear your story. And it's not wrong for you to share, even though you may not be Jewish, the story of how God became real to you and how he's part of your daily life and how he answers your prayers. Because one of the things that the Apostle Paul said, he said, he said, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke Israel to mm-hmm. jealousy. I magnify my ministry that I might provoke my fellow countrymen to jealousy. So if you are raised in one of these proper Christian homes, you know typically it's not right to make somebody jealous over what you have that they don't. But that's God's plan for Jewish evangelism because your faith, the vibrancy of your love for the God of Israel is going to be something that they're going to see as attractive that they don't have and they're going to want to know how they can have that. Mm -hmm. And many times, you know, one of the first things that will happen with a Jewish person who encounters a a lively Christian is they're going to want to go and start reading their own Bible. And they won't understand it, but that's a good step. And then they'll maybe open the pages of the New Testament and having heard like your friend did Mm -hmm. that it's a manual for anti-Semitism, they're going to open and read the first verses of the first book that's the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. I mean, how much more Jewish can you get than (laughs) Abraham and David? And so it's a big surprise, and uh, it's unfortunately one of the lies of Satan over the past 2,000 years that has kept Jewish people from seeing just how very Jewish it is to follow the Messiah Mm -hmm. of Israel, Mm -hmm. Jesus. And so when they discover that, it's kind of like a revelation 
on top of a revelation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I always say sometimes, like, how can you be anti-Semitic and, and claim to be a Christian? Because, like, you worship a Jewish man, you know that, right? <laughs> it's really amazing, and yet, of course, the the lie of anti-Semitism doesn't come from human philosophy. It comes from the pit of hell. Mm-hmm. And so the enemy of God and his people has used human philosophy and, you know, ultra nationalistic kinds of ideas in this country and around the world to hate and to promote hate of God's people. And we see that in Europe, you know, and we see that in America. And we see that, unfortunately, in our politics because you have a hard time understanding how it is that the United Nations Human Rights Commission has condemned the state of Israel more than any other nation, all of them put together. Hmm. How is that possible? Well, maybe it's because the members of the United Nations Human Relations Human Rights Council are made up of Iran and China and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. And so they're using anti-Israelism as a you know platform for genuine anti-Semitism, which has thrived in those cultures. Mm. And so um, it's a problem, and it's a problem that prevents Christians from really having access to Jewish people to witness to them because there's a big fear factor. And that's why when you love on a Jewish person and you say, my Messiah is Jewish, I love the Jewish people, I'm supportive of Israel's right. You know, you don't have to think that Israel's government does everything right, but that they have a right to the mm-hmm. to, to the land and mm-hmm. to live at peace, unmolested in the land. When Jewish people hear and understand that, that makes them think, well, maybe I don't know the whole story mm. about Jesus, you know? Uh-huh. And so it's a great thing to keep in mind as you meet Jewish people. Don't be afraid to express your love and your support. And Israel actually knows that. They know that their best friends in the whole world, in that very troubled neighborhood, their mm. best friends are evangelical Christians. Mm. Well, talk to us a little bit about how you would approach either uh, Orthodox, Reformed, Conservative Jews as as a Jewish person, and then what differences uh, there might be with with people who aren't Jewish Christians um, approaching their Jewish friends. Is there a difference there? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit works the same in everyone's heart, and so you cannot kind of say, well, a Reformed Jew is going to say this, whereas an Orthodox Jew is going to say that. Each one is an individual, and that's why it's important to kind of find out Mm -hmm. where they're coming from. I will tell you this. The ultra-Orthodox, which are in Israel known as the Haredim, are the most unreached people group in the world Hmm. because they are isolated. They're kind of like a Jewish form of Amish. Hmm. They really stick to themselves. They're very much caught up in a very, um, you know, uh, kind of strict form, almost syncretistic form of religious Judaism. And uh, because of that, there has been little impact in, in terms of having the gospel penetrate these communities. And Jews for Jesus has finally decided now, after all these years, mm-hmm. that we're going to make a concentrated effort to engage the religious. And you know what? We're beginning to find out that all along there has been curiosity. Mm-hmm. But there's such fear of the outcome of you know any kind of awareness among the leadership that someone might be interested in Jesus because there's approbation, there's being cut off, excommunicated, all of these things. And 
because they are such an insular group, their whole livelihood, their families, they're all tied together. So for a, a religious Jew to even contemplate reading the New Testament, they could find themselves out penniless, uh, losing their families, and nowhere to go. Hmm. So as we begin to think about how to engage these people with the gospel, we recognize it's not just enough to lead them to Christ. We have to provide a pathway for them mm -hmm. into a life that is, you know, maybe in the community and more quiet because there are some secret believers, even though at one point I doubted there could be such a thing. I've since discovered, no, there are. You know, that kind of uh, approach of being in the community and kind of quietly being a witness I think is valid, and we're, we're looking to establish more of that. When we reached out to Jerusalem, uh, we dressed as religious Jews. Mm. People thought, well, isn't that being a little bit dishonest? No. Hudson Taylor dressed himself uh, in order to be acceptable in the mm -hmm. community that would otherwise shun you. So this is not, uh, you know, it's not a common way of doing it, but we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, there's the calling out of the community that also has to happen. And so we're trying to discover and learn. We're going through a process right now, and it's a one area of great prayer because um, – one out of every five children that's born today in the Jewish community are born into an ultra-religious family. Hmm. So in 30 years from now, what does that mean for the Jewish community? We have to prepare now to reach that community, and that's a big focus for Jews for Jesus this year and going forward. Hmm. So is it fair to say then that there's, there's a little bit – well, let me just ask you the question. Is there more or less of a shock value for a Jewish person to discover that – uh, you are a Messianic Jew, or that um, a Christian who's not a Jew is a Christian? Or do they just expect all people who aren't Jewish who approach them to already be Christian? Yes. And um, actually, that was to our advantage in one of the ways that we've been reaching into the ultra-Orthodox community. So with women in the ultra-Orthodox community, they're very isolated. They're, they stay at home. They have babies. They keep the house, and most of them are fairly poor. They're on government assistance. The men go off to the seminaries. Mm. So what we started to do to reach into these homes, we called during the day when the wives were at home with the children by themselves, and we'd say, we're Christians, and we'd like to come by and help you. We know, you know it's hard to keep the house clean, take care of the kids, put a meal together. So we'd like to come by and help you. We can shop for you. We can take care of the kids while you do things. We can clean the house. They said, you're Christians? Yes. Well, why do you want to do this? Well, because, uh, you know, we're supposed to love the Lord our God and love our neighbors as ourselves. Didn't Moses say that? Our rabbi said that too. Oh, mm. you have a rabbi? Yes. Well, we'll tell you more. So you, then you go over and they're saying, well, you're Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we're speaking Hebrew and we're Jewish names. And, you know, so they say, wait a minute, you're Jewish. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a reverse mm -hmm. that actually opens up the conversation. We say, no, we're Christians. But then, but you're Jewish, uh -huh. you know, because if we said we're Jewish, they say, no, you're Christian. And that tries, you know, oh, so okay, it gotcha. kind of flips things on its yeah, head. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing to see happen, but it's been one of the most dynamic new ways that Jews for Jesus is testing to reach into that very isolated community. 
Interesting. So that, that really gives people pause uh, to say, wait, wait, it's like, what? <laughs> That's right. I remember once I was wearing a, a t- I, we usually, uh, you know, in the, in the days before when we'd stand out on the street corners all the time and hand out tracks, we don't do that quite as much, though. It's still effective in certain communities. Uh, we'd wear Jews for Jesus t-shirts. Mm-hmm. And people would come up to me and we'd say, you're not Jewish. If you're for Jesus, you're not a Jew. And then I'd have somebody who's not Jewish wear a Goyim for Jesus t-shirt, mm. which is saying, you know, Gentiles for Jesus. And uh, Jewish people come to him and say, you're really Jewish, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, how can we be praying for Jews for Jesus and, and Jewish people in general? Thank you. We are living in amazing times where the openness to the gospel is unprecedented. For example, in the most recent high holiday services in Paris, our branch leader and our staff were invited by one of the most uh, well-known reformed synagogues to share in the leadership of the high holy day services. I never expected to be alive to see something like that where there's that kind of openness. The San Francisco branch leader of Jews for Jesus was just recently invited to speak to a group of youth on what he believes and why by the rabbi. Hmm. And I thought it was going to be one of these beat up on the uh, you know beat up on the missionary type of things, but the rabbi said no, I've just been my kids have been asking me questions and I figured might as well get you guys here to answer the questions. Wow. And these are unprecedented kind of little anecdotes Mm -hmm. of the kind of opportunity that's out there. And so as you pray, pray the scriptures. Pray like Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Uh, Pray for our missionaries as we're out encountering Jewish people, that we would be faithful, that we would be diligent, that God would give us wisdom, uh, that some of these new initiatives, especially among the ultra-Orthodox, will make a big impact and that we would see this remnant grow. Paul talks about a remnant according to God's gracious Mm -hmm. choice. Well, that remnant is a remnant because it's seen. If the remnant isn't visible, it's not really a remnant. Mm -hmm. What I'm wanting to tell those of us who are are listening today is that the remnant is growing. The visibility of Jews who have come to faith in Jesus is becoming more prominent. May our tribe increase and may Christians believe in the promises of God for the future of Israel and for the work of of Jewish evangelism. Believe, pray, support, partner with us to see God's word fulfilled even in our day. How can people get in contact with you and learn more about Jews for Jesus? You can go onto our website, jews4forjesus.org. That's the easiest way. Or you can write, if you don't happen to be on the internet, write to our main office in San Francisco, Jews for Jesus, 60, that's 60, Hate Street, H-A-I-G-H-T, San Francisco, California, 94102. We'd be happy to be in touch. Is that Hate Street as in Hate Ashbury? Uh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not what that has been famous for over no, the years. No, <laughs> it's not. But you know, that out of that uh, kind of rebellious uh, time in America's history, a lot of young people got saved. And that was really the heartbeat of what began as the Jews for Jesus movement, which is now the worldwide ministry of Jews for Jesus. That's awesome to see how God has uh, been working and, and to see how, how Jewish people have come to faith in Christ and the impact that that uh, we see the gospel having today, even in Israel. 
That's amazing. It is amazing. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Mikhail. Shalom. Shalom to you. And we thank you so much as well for joining us today on The Table Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.